It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today, our guest is pianist, composer, and educator Pete Mellonverney, and we are here to speak to Pete today about his new release called On the Town. plays the music of Leonard Bernstein. The trio album features bassist Ugana Okegwo and drummer Jeff Hamilton. And Pete, it is a pleasure to have you with us here on All That's Jazz. Well, it's a real pleasure for me too, Alan. Thank you so much. Well, I would like to start out by talking just a little bit about you for the benefit of some of our listeners so that uh, they know a little bit about your background and so forth. In the introduction, I addressed the subject that you are an educator and you're currently serving as the head of jazz studies at Purchase SUNY. That's right. Purchase is a town maybe 20 miles north of New York, something like that. And it's a really beautiful area, sort of bucolic around there. And we have a big, big campus with a lot of, lot of green and a lot of blue sky. And it serves as a um, sort of a nice respite because some of, many of our students come from New York City proper. And those who don't are in the city a lot because it's real easy to go back and forth. They're in the city a lot listening to music, playing on jam sessions, etc. So we like our location just outside the city. And um, the other nice thing is we have space, right? So we got a lot of great mm-hmm. practice rooms and all that, which is, you know, when you go to music school, practice rooms is like one of the most important things. Also, we have a lot of large rooms, so we're able to have, we're able to have our students play together to, in groups and we're able to build what to me is the most important thing about our program, which is a sense of family, a sense of community where people inspire each other rather than compete against one another. I always tell my students, every time musicians start competing against each other, it brings the price down. Uh So let's support each other, right? Let's wish each other well. Let's help each other. And uh, over the course of time, I have found it to be really wonderful because I'll be out on gigs, maybe playing with colleagues who teach at the school or even with a former student on the bandstand with me. And the place will just be filled with former and current students from Purchase. And I love to see them all get together and compare notes and trade phone numbers, which, you know, that's the coin of the realm really in New York City everybody can play everybody can sing you know so what you want is people you like people with whom you have at least something in common and people with whom you share that culture which we're trying to uh it, with which we're trying to inform our program and i think it's working of family of community uh so for me it's great our faculty are all really great players and singers you know on the scene in New York City so the kids know the students know we're there 
telling them the truth. You know, with love, but we're telling them the truth. So for me, that's a really, that's a, it's a very important part of my life. I, I love doing it. You've also been a musician, originally from Niagara Falls, New uh-huh. York, and got into the music business. But what got you into education? Well, okay, so you said Niagara Falls, right? I grew up in Niagara Falls, um, and my teacher from when I was six was this wonderful classical piano teacher who taught in the old Russian method, with the old Russian method, which really insists on the building of physical strength at the keyboard, the ability to play just about anything. And I had that till I got out of high school, but I was playing sports and all that. And there was a period there where, you know, when you play piano, uh, Alan, it's not like you're playing trumpet or violin where you sit in a section in high school orchestra or band. And so you're with other people who play your instrument. It's different when you play the piano. When you're Mm -hmm. practicing the piano, you are by definition alone and your friends are outside playing ball. So it's a really hard thing, man, to, to, to find that kind of encouragement from colleagues and other people who know what you're up against, right, when you try to practice, when you try to learn music. So I was very close to quitting music just because I wasn't getting that kind of thing, which I now understand was that collegiality. And uh, when I was a sophomore in, in high school, this man who ran the choral program at my high school came and sought me out because he had heard of my, at least my musicianship. And he wanted me to join the choir because not everybody in the choir was a music reader and thought, however my voice was, my musicianship would be useful in the choir, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I got into his choir, this is back at, in the time when thick black horn-rimmed glasses, short hair was not cool, right? This was this guy was a hipster before it was hip. And, and you know, he was old school. I'm talking, you know, when everyone had long hair and wore jeans and flannel shirts to high school. This guy was kind of a pocket protector, white shirt with a thin (laughs) tie kind of cat, you know. Anyway, his passion for excellence, his insistence on perfection so inspired me. And I started to realize, yeah, this is it. And he pulled me back from the brink of quitting music. And so I said, well, I want to go to school for education because this is what it's where it's at. So I went to school for music ed and I was there for a month or two until I realized, no, this this isn't it. This is not what I want to do. Um, I don't want to teach in an elementary school or a high school. I just knew that it wasn't for me. I knew that I wanted to be a player. And I wanted to move to New York after a while, after I got out of school, because I did stay and get my degree. But I wanted to go to New York and try to play. Still, his, his inspiration stays with me. And as I stayed around New York and sort of got my rear end kicked, as, as it will do in New York, uh, I started to learn almost in self-defense, right? Uh, yeah, you come from upstate New York and you're all wide-eyed and naive and all, and you come to New York and they beat you down pretty quickly. And so I hung in there uh, and I learned a very important lesson, which is when somebody says no to me, I don't hear no. I hear not yet. 
So I had to learn that, right? I had to say, okay, that's not happening right now. What do I have to do to make it happen? Okay, usually the answer is practice. Usually the answer is listen more to, to more music. Usually it's that get more experience, whatever it is, right? So over time I did that. My career started to, you know, I started to do well enough that, I mean, they still haven't kicked me out of New York. So thank God for that. I uh, started making recordings, etc. And then I got to a point where a lot of people, my generation, never thought they would teach. But as the jazz education thing started to, started to sort of ramp up, one saw it as maybe another way to, um, another addition to one's career, right? Another way to kind of help pay the bills. And I was working quite a bit with the great bassist Rufus Reed, who was the head of the jazz studies program out at William Patterson University in New Jersey. And I said, hey, Rufus, if anything ever comes up, man, I'd appreciate a call. Well, he called pretty shortly after that, and I started teaching there. Just a couple of students here and there and, um, you know, a, a small group, coaching a small group. But I started to find out that I loved it. And a very important thing happened, Alan. Because I was so young at the time, I was thinking, okay, when you walk in, you're the teacher. You've got to have the answers. And so initially, I was a little afraid of questions to which I didn't know the answer. But after doing it over time, I, I now realize that those are just the questions you want. Because if I'm teaching a theory class now, let's just say, and a student, uh, we're talking about whatever concept it is, and a student says, yeah, but what about X, Y, or Z? I'm really glad when I don't know the answer, because I say, well, let's figure it out. And what that does is that shows the students that I'm not afraid of what I don't know because I know there's an answer. There's got to be an answer. So we all get a chance to kind of share our passion for learning. And also they get to see how I search for answers. I really think that teaching is more, you know, you've heard the old saying, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. And if you teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And so that's what I do. I show them how I fish. I show them how, to, how I, I bait the hook, where to cast. My experience has taught me that a piece of bread works better than whatever. A piece of spam works even better than that, you know. <laughs> and, and here I'm talking all this, and I'm a vegan, but I, I imagine these things to be true. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, you know, it's, that's the kind of thing. And, and for me, it's, it's like enlivening. I enjoy it more every year. I learn more from the students every year. And, you know, I've been running the program, geez, 10 years now almost. And um, it's just been such a great trip, you know. I mean, I went to school for music ed, and here I am, a jazz piano player in New York. No matter what you do in your life, I believe in education and music an understanding of the need to get better, the need to love what you do, which we try to convey to our students, will serve one well, no matter uh, one's uh, you know choice of paths in life. Well, besides the education, you also followed a ministerial path as well. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. Okay. Thanks for that question. I, I grew up playing in church as a kid. Uh, in fact, that was where I did most of my performing, at least until I was in my early teens when I started to, you know, play gigs. 
uh, outside. But mostly, I mean, since I was, let's see, I remember I started playing in church. I guess I was around eight years old after I'd just been playing for a year or two. Um, you know, I would, if I had learned a little piece, I would play it in church. You know, my folks would call the pastor and the pastor would say, okay, do that during the offering tomorrow. So I started to do that. And, I, you know, of course, in by doing that, I had to learn a lot of the hymns, you know, etc. It was a wonderful church in that I made a lot of friends whom I still call friends now. But the overall feeling was a little bit conservative, let's say. It was a actually a Pentecostal church, so hmm. the uh, worship was anything but conservative, right? But the music was still, you know, you had to do it a certain way, you know, and I'd get up there and I'd play some hymn, you know, and I'd be trying to do some improvisation on it, you know, and these nice old ladies, always oh, so sweet to me. That was very lovely, Peter, but what song was that? <laughs> that was Amazing Grace. Didn't you recognize it? You know, so, which of course I was making the mistake all young musicians make, you know, of thinking, you know, the weirder, the, the hipper, right? The, the less recognizable, the better it must be, right? Anyway, so I, but like I was listening when I was in like high school, middle school, high school, I started to hear music by James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, the Temptation, you know, all that stuff. And that's how I wanted music to sound. So after I got out of college and I moved to New York, an old buddy of mine who had been my big brother in a college fraternity, African-American, he went down to uh, Morehouse College of Religion in, in Atlanta, became a preacher. And he moved back to where he was from, Brooklyn, right around the same time I was moving to New York. And we re-engaged our friendship. Well, it wasn't long before he got a church of which he was going to be the pastor there in Brooklyn, and he invited me to come and join in a little bit. Well, 18 years later, I had been uh, the minister of music there just that long, and uh, I finally found a way to play those songs how I wanted to play them. I had a great choir who were inspiring to me. It was called the DeVoe Street Baptist Church, and it's in Williamsburg, New York. I started to write music for the choir, arrange already music, but then I also composed a bunch of music uh, using the Psalms of David as uh, my text, you know. Uh, so I was doing a bunch of that, and that really changed my life. I, I brought my son up in that church. When he got to be about 10 years old, he started playing drums with me, uh, which is another great thing about the black church is there's the responsibility is felt by everyone to bring the next generation up. They learn on the job, right? So mm -hmm. my son was playing with me, and he was getting better every week. It was great. And the choir were lovely and welcoming of him. you know. And then I started back in 2009, I started working also at a Reformed Jewish temple called Westchester Reform in Scarsdale, New York. And I found that to be really inspiring and beautiful as well. Music is perhaps different, but I find, and this is something that, just to back up a little bit, I realized one day when I was playing at DeVoe Street, man, this feels great. This always feels great. I never have to think about it. I just, I just kind of trust and let it roll and it's beautiful. Why am I nervous on the bandstand sometimes? Why do I second guess myself sometimes in the studio? 
And I realized it was because in the church setting, I was trusting the music and just trying to remain open and let the music flow through me as though I were merely a vessel, a prepared vessel because I practiced my rear off, but, and I prepare and I study and all of that. But in the moment, you're right in the heat of battle, you become a vessel and just let it flow. And I do that at the temple as well. And because people in those settings come with open hearts, right? They come wanting to be touched and moved and participate in the music. And so that's what I bring to the bandstand in the studio now. Like when I get on stage in a club, if I'm the band leader, I talk to the audience that way. I say, look, we're here for you. You're here for us. Let's commune. And it's not like, you know, some kind of like light a match and, you know, like that whole thing. But I think it's real. I don't, you know, it may sound esoteric and all that, but it's music we're talking about. We're talking about communion among, uh, between souls, between humans, you know, who feel. And I find that if you talk to your audience that way, I find they hear it. And as long as you're consistent and you really play that way too, like it's, I hear a lot of people talk that way, Mm -hmm. but I can tell they're playing very egotistically. You know, they have to, it has to line up. And, and so I find that even though, okay, we've talked about education, we've talked now about the uh, religious settings and I'm I'm sure we'll talk about the record as well. It's all the same, man. Mm -hmm. It's all about, we're here together. Let's make this work together. And and that's how I think really music can save the world. I really believe that. So right. as a performer, I, I know you've got some 15, 16 releases to your credit as mm-hmm. the leader. And yes. uh, the latest of which is uh, On the Town. And that's a a tribute to the music of, of probably also one of the most inspirational and, and musical giants in the world, and that's Leonard Bernstein. How, how did that come about? What is it that finally got you motivated to put something out? Because I, I think you met the man 25, 26 years ago, and now yeah. all of a sudden it's an album. Right. Well, I, do we have time I can tell you the story of the night I met him? Sure. Okay. So I was playing a gig at this fancy uh, solo piano gig. When I first moved to New York, I made my living playing piano in fancy restaurants because, you know, that was a good way to put on your tux or whatever it was. And you go in and you play music. And I was learning, getting to learn all the songs of the Great American Songbook and all that. And, you know, they paid well. I was getting fed and people even listened sometimes <laughs> Uh, But anyway, uh, so I was playing at this fancy restaurant and they said, okay, tomorrow night when you come in, we have some folks coming from uh, the opera. So we want to make sure that you're prepared to play for that. I'm like, okay. So of course I can do that. Right. And I had no idea what I was going to do. So, but you do that in New York. You just say yes. And then, (laughs) then you get it together, you know, or you don't, but you know, at least you got the gig. So I went home and uh, there was a woman lived upstairs for me. I was living in Grunge Village at the time. There was a woman living upstairs for me who was a uh, an opera singer, you know. So I went and knocked on her door the next morning and I said, listen, I got to play a bunch of opera stuff tonight. Can you help me? So she had a book of arias, which she gave me. 
And so I went downstairs and I'm practicing them, you know. And every now and then the phone would ring and she'd say, okay, that one's too fast. That one's too slow, etc." Make sure you play that one to sound like a waltz now, you know. Anyway, so I spent the whole day practicing this stuff. Because opera really is something different. So I really hadn't, you know, I grew up playing classical piano, but the opera, the phrasing is completely different. And I have to admit, at the time, I had not gone to the Met a bunch. Maybe I'd been there once since moving to New York. Now, of course, I go several times a year because I love it. But anyway, I was sort of prepared, sort of unprepared. So I get to the thing, and it turns out that night, it's a cast party for the premiere of the Franco Zeffirelli production of Tosca Mm. at the Met with Placido Domingo and Hildegard Behrens in the the starring roles. So, I mean, these are some heavy hitters. And I see Leonard Bernstein walk in. And, I mean, I idolized him because, you know, it was through him that I learned so much from his young people's concerts and there was a series of recordings made of those and his famous Harvard lecture series. I knew about all that stuff. And I just thought he was a great musician and seemed like a really good person. So I see him walking in, you know. And so I started playing a tune of his, uh, Lucky to Be Me. And he had taken a cab there after the opera, so he just wanted to stop in the men's room, powder his nose, whatever. And he says, wait a minute, right? So he goes in the men's room, and a friend of mine happened to be in the men's room at the time. <laughs> and as you know, you never look at the guy next to you. No. You know, you just kind of go in there, and you know there's somebody there, but, you know, you don't exchange looks. Anyway, Bernstein's in there whistling, lucky to be me. And wow. my Yeah, and my buddy goes, that's a nice song. And Leonard Bernstein goes, thanks, I wrote it. Wow, wow. (laughs) Right? So he said, the kid out there is playing it. So my buddy tells him, oh, that's my friend, you know, and so they talk, whatever. Bernstein comes out of the bathroom, and he's like, Malin Verni, I know all about you. And he walks across the floor, comes up on the stage, grabs me, and gives me a big kiss on the cheek. And just hung out with me, man. Wow. You know, he's in this room with all these heavy hitters, but he wants to hang out with the piano player. And he introduced me to Betty Comden and Adolph Green, with Mm -hmm. whom he wrote On the Town and Wonderful Town, because I was playing all their songs. You know, so it was just, it was a night, really, Alan, that I'll never forget. Because I saw that, you know, the thing one has to say about Leonard Bernstein, successful as he was in every phase of music, to me, his greatest legacy is his love for music. To me, that's the thing I think about him, is a guy who loved music and loved people. And I really saw that that night, and I never forgot it. Then a little while later, I was playing at another club down in Soho and the um, bartender and I became friends and his girlfriend, now wife, uh, had been personal chef to Leonard Bernstein and she had a sheaf of lined music paper, blank, lined music paper that Bernstein had given her to take notes on or something, whatever. Mm -hmm. And she gave it to this guy, James, the bartender, to give to me. So I had that sitting here. 
for years. And it was that paper I used to write all the arrangements for this recording. So uh, at, on the centennial of Bernstein's birth, I was uh, curating, uh, when we still had live performances, the jazz performances at the Performing Arts Center on campus at Purchase College, SUNY. And so I proposed a program of the music of Leonard Bernstein, and it featured uh, Joe Lovano playing tenor and soprano saxophone, and four horn players and a rhythm section, and I wrote all the arrangements. And that's when I picked the songs, and I said, okay, his body of work is vast. Mm -hmm. And what I came down to was I wanted to do the songs that were New York-centric. So that means On the Town, Wonderful Town, and West Side Story. So I, I played through all the stuff, played through it every which way, tempo, keys, everything, feel. And I came up with sort of a book of songs that I thought would work programmatically, right? That, that it would work. There'd be a nice flow tempo-wise, etc. And I wrote all the arrangements and we put it on and it was great. But you can't bring an octet around everywhere. <laughs> and I play a lot of trio. Right. That's really kind of what I do most is play with my trio. And I started to work, play that music. And I found that because of all the preparation I had done before, I kind of knew the songs from the inside out. And that sort of freed things up on the bandstand so that the, the, the trio enabled me to really start to feel a flow with this music. And it was about time I made another trio record. So I said, I know what I'm going to do. And then it just became a question, okay, who are you going to use on the record? Where are you going to record it? The idea of where was a no-brainer. I, I always loved Rudy Van Gelder's studio. I recorded there many times with Rudy as the engineer. Uh, now, since he's passed, his assistant, Maureen Sickler, is, is, the, is the engineer there. Uh, and I always got along great with her. So I booked that studio. Uh, I'd been playing a lot with the bassist Ugana Okegwo, so I knew I wanted him there. And then the drummer was a real question. And I just kind of started to think about it. And, you know, I have a whiteboard, you know, and I was mm -hmm. keeping track of all these ideas and everything. And I had all these great drummers written down that I played with that I hadn't played with, et cetera, et cetera. And I remembered that my first record ever was with Dennis Irwin and Mel Lewis, and we recorded it at Van Gelder. And the first person to purchase that record was the great drummer Jeff Hamilton. Hmm. And we became sort of pen pals. He lives out in L.A. And we would see each other at conferences or whatever, and we never played together, but I always knew I'd love it. And so I asked him if he would be into it. And he said, absolutely, I've been waiting for you to ask. So <laughs> so we did it. Uh, he flew out. We did a rehearsal, a couple rehearsals, three or four gigs. And then we went into the studio. And there was a real a lovely communication among the three of us because, well, Jeff, he had listened. When I was putting the arrangements together, as I imagined them, I recorded them and sent them to him. And so he already knew pretty much what was happening. And I was very careful to tell him, look, this is what the drummer did on it here on these things in rehearsals. But I want you to, put, you know, obviously I'm, I'm asking you to be you. 
And so he came in knowing the forms of the songs, knowing everything, and with these beautiful ideas of his own, a real understanding of what I was going for. And so it was like, you know, well, like you, for example, we've never really met, I don't think, but no. I feel like I've known you forever. And it was like that with Jeff. I mean, it was like, boom, hand in glove. We just fit. Great. And I think it's evident on the record because it's real free. You know, we only did maybe two takes on everything, but really? I can tell you the takes we didn't use, they're different from the ones we did use. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we were going for it that day in the studio, which we were able to do because we trusted each other. We'd all prepared and we'd played several gigs already together. So that, that was ready to flow, you know? Well, you know, you chose well. I mean, obviously Jeff Hamilton is a legend, etc. But Ugana, you know, he he's he's amazing. Uh, I did a, a podcast uh, with uh, Wayne Escoffrey, and Ugana is on that album with him, the Humble Warrior album. Mm -hmm. And Wayne was just over the moon complimentary and just uh, awestruck at, at uh, how much he uh, lended to the release and the music itself it's really true he's got well he's a great musician right mm -hmm. so i mean he always plays in tune he plays melodically etc cetera, etc cetera. he knows what notes to put under chords but he also has that wonderful combination of good ears and the willingness to go along mm-hmm so when we play, and we play together a lot, there's always a conversation going on. It's not me dictating, but it's me feeling free to play something if I have an idea. And I know he'll hear it and pick up on it, and vice versa, because I love to hear what he's thinking. Well, you obviously did not go wrong on this album. It, it's it's it, exquisite, uh, oh, in, in a word. It, it's It's absolutely amazing. Let's take a, a quick walk through some of the tracks on it. Let's start with the first track that's on the release, and that's New York, New York, which, by the way, after I listened to your recording, I couldn't get that song out of my head. All I can hear over and over, New York, New York, it's a wonderful town, and watching these three sailors dancing their way through <laughs> New York, and I'm going, oh, my God. Right, <laughs> Stop. <I know. laughs> but you... Well you do it justice. I mean, it's, and I assume you arranged all of the tunes yourself in, mm -hmm. in terms of how you wanted to present them. Yeah. Uh, with one exception on the album, which is your own composition, uh, at the end, uh, the, uh, the night on the town. Right. Right. Well, okay. So you mentioned New York, New York, and that's really, I think the key to it all, the way he starts that melody it goes, boda booty. And if you will, it's sol do, sol do, sol do, sol do, right? It's uh, five one in these two different keys. To me, that is the basis of Western music, really. So if I go sol do, sol do, sol, you're going to be on the edge of your seat waiting for me to go do, right? <laughs> so that right. is encapsulated tension 
and resolution that is at the basis of all Western music, really at the basis of all art, if you think of it. We all seek resolution, whether it be in a book, in a movie, uh, the understanding of a painting, whatever it is, we look for the tension and the resolution. And it's up to the musician how long, or the composer, or the writer, or the film director, how long for you to wait after I go soul. It's up to me to decide how long you can wait for do before I hit it, or you might lose interest. Right? So that's kind of the, the game. And that's why you can't get that song out of your head, because it's the most basic thing in the world. It is. It. And then he reclaims the leap, right? Comes back down to the dough. It's really, it's, if you think about it theoretically, it's perfect. Perfect melodic construction. Mm-hmm. So, and then, the, I don't know if, if I, I can't remember the order on the record, but there's a song, Lonely Town. Yes. That's on there. And he starts that one the verse you know the introductory section of it he starts it new york new york or a village in iowa the only difference is the name himself Mm -hmm. and to me that's the secret of leonard bernstein's songs is there's always something really that it feels natively recognizable it it feels somehow just right but then there's always a curveball and that's what i love about it and you mentioned the last tune on the record my night on the town which i sort of wrote as a reminiscence of the night i met him I take that same Buddha booty, but I, I, I put all different harmonies under it uh, to see just how malleable it would be and how if you if you play that same and you change the chords under it, man, there's all it, it has all different um, meanings depending on the chords you're playing. that to be really in fact you know what i'm going to do is i'm going to walk you over to my piano and i'm going to show you what i mean is that okay okay fantastic okay great so um let's see all right here you are here i am so here's this phrase right Mm -hmm. so i can go right that's what we expect five one what if I go or 
or and so on, right? Right. So that's what's cool about it. Uh, you know, so that thing, all of a sudden, the thing that was so absolute, soldo, takes on a different meaning depending on the chords you put under it. So that's what that on the town, uh, a night on the town uh, tune was uh, my my effort and exploration of that. That one is is great. Uh, it, they're all wonderful. And there were nice. several tracks from On the Town, but then you also uh, launched into three of them uh, that were from West Side Story. Man, I don't know if you've seen the new movie yet. No, and I was going to ask you, if that was part of your inspiration because maybe you knew there was going to be a remake? No. No, I mean, this is what I'm saying, man. If you live your life kind of like looking to make connections, they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like this this couldn't be more perfect timing-wise. But I did. I saw, I saw the new movie the other day, and I have to say I thought it was spectacular. It was beautiful. And I just thought there was such great music there. So I, I did uh, Somewhere, Cool, I Feel Pretty, and I think that's mm-hmm. it on the record. Okay, so for Cool, for example, that was such a blast because I kind of like, I took the original, like the figure that's in there, right? And I, I, I didn't want to just think about the, the melodic intervals, but I also wanted to think about the rhythmic aspect of that. And also the notion of the the tension, you know, of the rumble and all of that, right? So I asked Jeff to just play some stuff out front. And he totally slew it. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I hope your listeners will have a chance to uh, listen to this recording, uh, if only for the way Jeff starts and ends. Cool. I mean, it's ridiculous. Somewhere, of course, is one of the great ballads. And that is also an example of the simplicity, the sneaky simplicity of Bernstein's melodies, because, um, let's see, Uh, there it is. That's very simple, right? So he makes his big leap, right? It's aspirational. There's a place for us, right? And, I mean, that sounds like there's a place for us. It sounds like someone dreaming of something better and and more beautiful. But it's also, he also makes it sound possible because he makes that leap. 
and comes back. He leaps again and comes back. And then... Right? So he keeps leaping and coming back. And, and uh, to me, it's, it's beautiful. It's like, it's hope, it's aspiration, but it doesn't deny our clay feet after all. And of course, uh, I, I uh, admire you and say bravo to you for including one piece, the, uh, the simple song, which is from Bernstein's Mass. Yeah. And I'm sure that has something to do with your connection to church. Well, yeah, I, um, you know, church and and temple, really, because I've all, I mean, gee whiz, since probably my third or fourth record, because of my experiences in that church in Brooklyn, and now uh, with the temple, I've always felt it important to include at least one spiritual piece on every record. For my record, Heaven, a trio record I made, Every tune is is there, there way connected in that way, but there's always at least one on every record, and so I thought this was appropriate. Um, simple song being uh, based on one of the Psalms of King David. I hadn't thought about that number in a long time, because every time I heard it, the way it was originally played, you know, there was like electric guitar, and it was kind of funny. I never quite got it to be honest. But then a buddy of mine came up to me on a gig and said, man, I was looking at this song, the, the simple song, and and he showed me his analysis some of, the, uh, of some of the chords, and it sort of piqued my interest, you know? Hmm. So I went home and started playing with it, and I, and I ordered the score and got the music home, and I started to break it down and saw really what I thought was you know, what you want to do when you're looking to make an arrangement is you want to find what is it that makes this piece work? What is the basic thing about this piece? And then you don't want to lose that, right? Once you figure out what that is, at least to you, you have to keep that in there. And then whatever you do around it must not obscure that. So once I found out what that was, then I felt free to kind of find other things. And eventually there's like a rhythmic groove, which you, you hear in it, where we feel we get kind of funky with it. You know, and I think it works because we also state the melody in the front and, in, and at the end in the way that it was. But then we get into a groove where, where Jeff plays so beautifully and, and it's kind of a free moment for us. wonderful release it is and I you know Pete I could go on for hours talking with you this is this is fascinating and and I just appreciate that. 
Uh, and it's great to, just to hear your enthusiasm and your passion for the music, and especially for the music of uh, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, let me let me just ask you, rather than me give you my opinion, do you think you struck the right chord or note on this one? Do you, do you do justice to Leonard Bernstein? Well, it's my fervent prayer that I did. This is, and your musician listeners will know just what I mean. This is the first record I've made that I can remember that I can actually listen to, <laughs> you know, and kind of like it. It's very hard, man, to uh, listen to yourself. But I hear it, and, and what I listen and enjoy, listen to and enjoy when I listen to the record is, is the absolute agreement between the three of us to try to make each other sound good. So when I listen to it, I enjoy very much listening to the interplay. I know all the effort that went into the arranging and blah, 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 blah. But what I hear is the interplay. And so in that regard, yes, I'm very happy with the record and at least know that I did my best. Okay, so I'll say that. I hope it will add lastingly to the collection of people who have admired Bernstein and tried to pay tribute in recordings. But, uh, man, his light still shines. Well, let me leave you with something then, and that is not only did you do Bernstein justice, you superseded it. I think even to the point where if he were alive today and he saw you performing again, he would come up and kiss the other cheek and say, Pete, <laughs> you did a great job with my music, man. Wow. Thank you for saying that. You know, I've, I've thought about that because... I would want that to be the case. That would be, be my uh, dearest wish. Well, and I appreciate you saying that too, Alan. And it, it comes from the heart. Uh, and I will tell you that the, the music, and this is not just to placate you. Uh, it, it's just uh, wonderful music and a joy to listen top to bottom on this album. Thank you, brother. One last piece of business. How can people learn more about Pete Mellon Verney? Okay, uh, thanks for asking. So my website is PeteMalinVerney.com, and my last name is spelled M-A-L-I-N-V, like victory, E-R-N-I. So PeteMalinVerney.com, and I uh, invite everyone to take a look, and there's a way that you can write me a note if you wish. Uh, there are ways to get a hold of this music there, if you wish, um, and I really appreciate it. It's been a distinct pleasure to have you as our guest on All That's Jazz. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with pianist, composer, and educator Pete Mallon-Burney. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.